Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Angela Saylor, and I am the chief of staff to our president, Kay Coles-James, here at the Heritage Foundation. And on behalf of our president, and on behalf of the Heritage Foundation, and the Gloucester Institute, I want to give you a warm welcome to the second annual Jay Parker Lecture Series. We are so excited about um, our topic today, civil discourse. Uh, the team here at Heritage has been talking about this topic for almost a year now, and we are, have really been deliberating at the direction of our president over how to begin to engage in this conversation uh, in a unique way, a meaningful way, and one that would continue the conversation. And we think we nailed it. So we are really looking forward to you making a commitment during the next hour to be actively engaged in this program. We have a wonderful panel. By no means, though, is this a one-way street. We really want this to be a dialogue. And again, we spent some time really thinking about how to make that happen. So we've all seen the news for the past year. We've all been Americans for the past year. And I think we all have thoughts about civility and the dangers that we have seen with a decline in civility. And so we said, okay, so how do we kind of couch this conversation in a way that it can be containable, but at the same time where we could leave a gathering like this, of, what, of which we would call a convening, and feel like we have made a commitment to ourselves and to the bigger community, and also where we feel like we've come up with some solutions um, through understanding some different perspectives about civility. So we said, okay, so how, how could this actually work? Like, where, where do we kind of narrow this conversation? And so we decided to look at movements, Movements beginning with the Boston Tea Party all the way to Black Lives Matter. And so what we're going to do now is we are going to ask you to take your attention to the screen and we're going to kick this off with a video and then our wonderful panel will come on stage. I'll give a quick introduction of them and we're going to dive straight into this conversation. So by a show of hands, are you willing to be an active participant in this conversation, and are you willing, and are, will you take on the goal of us leaving here feeling like we have understanding of a different perspective and 
we are beginning to craft some solutions by a show of hands. Thank you. If you would look at the screen. During the late 50s and early 60s, we felt that we had an obligation uh, to get out there. Uh, we had the time, uh, we had the energy, and the vigor to get out there and push. They had the courage to face down anyone who would deny them equal rights. You are pro-life. Why? You would no matter the circumstances, I think life is always worth standing up for. It doesn't matter if there's a blizzard or not. I think it really stoked that the weather sucks every year. It's great because it's such a much better testimony. I mean, they're they're worth that. I mean, this is a human beings who aren't allowed to live. President Obama, are you listening? It began last February with an offhand slap at President Obama's stimulus plan by a cable commentator speaking from the floor of the Chicago Board of Trade. We're thinking of having a Chicago tea party in July. All you capitalists that want to show up to Lake Michigan, I'm going to start organizing. But it wasn't capitalists or politicians or any one central group who organized last April's tax day protests or who fueled last September's Washington protest that drew tens of thousands or that helped put Republican Scott Brown in a Massachusetts Senate seat. In fact, what makes the so-called Tea Party movement so significant is that it isn't driven by any one personality or issue. There's no list of members or chapters. Best guess is that several hundred thousand participated in one or more of the protests last year. There's no one office or figure who speaks for the movement. And this. And this. You shot four bullets into him, sir. He was just getting his license and registration, sir. Which give rise to this. So if our distinguished panel would join us, Armstrong Williams, American political commentator, entrepreneur, author, Joshua Johnson, host of 1A NPR, and Pastor A.R. Bernard, Sr., founding pastor of the Christian Cultural Center in New York City with over 37,000 members and founder of the Brooklyn Preparatory School and Cultural Arts Academy Charter School. Welcome, gentlemen. So as I promised, we are jumping right in now that we've looked at the video. And we want you to get to know these gentlemen through the dialogue. And so, Armstrong, I want to start with you. I just want to get your thoughts, your immediate thoughts on the few highlights that we looked at in terms of movements and how that has resonated with you as a professional and as a person. Well, I'm happy to be here and I uh, appreciate the opportunity. You know, movements are nothing new to our culture, whether it's the American Revolution, or World War I, or World War II, or even the Gutenberg Press. 
that was a movement in and of itself. It changed the dynamics and the trajectory of this country. But then there are these things that we call social movements, which involve um, morality. I mean, the civil rights movement was that um, we should not sin against our brother. And what happens is, is that people know within their conscience that there's no way that you should discriminate, uh, give disadvantage to someone based on race. And the fact is, it was a moral revolution. And Dr. King's message of nonviolence, while it resonated, and many people have hijacked it, used it for movements that occur today, while that was going on, Malcolm X and others had a different point of view. And when Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death, that's not what he really meant. Give me liberty or somebody's going to die. And that's, and, that's, and that's what you have to face in these movements. You either give me liberty, you treat me like a human being, you don't discriminate against me, uh, or somebody's going to die. And in any movement, somebody's going to die, there's going to be a loss of life, there's going to be tragedy, there's going to be a chaos. But sometimes out of chaos comes healing. But what happens to these movements, whether it's the gay rights movement, whether it's the civil rights movement, whether it's the women's suffrage movement, money comes into play and people begin to use as pawns and they lose the purpose of the movement and people use it as a business. And they keep people believing that we're still in that movement 20 and 30 years later. And so the movement never dies. So once money and greed and corruption is infused into a movement, it loses its moral flavor and it becomes political. And that's where the chaos, that's where the angst, that's where the anger and eventually lost the lives come into it because politicians use people as political tools and political pawns. And the media is more than happy to oblige to blow it up because it leads, it bleeds, and it sells advertising and it brings listeners to their platforms. Joshua, as a, as a media a leader in the media, we'd like to hear your perspective. It's nice of you to think of me as a leader in the media. I'm just, it's just, this is just another day at the office for me. But I'm honored to be here. You know, greetings from all of us at WAMU and NPR. We're so thrilled to be part of this event alongside Amanda Williams, who's one of our producers at 1A. You know, I, from the perspective of someone who is part of the media and who is part of an industry, as Mr. Williams very astutely says, can benefit and profit from all the chaos, it's kind of fascinating for me and for us to be doing what we do at the time that we're doing it to try to find a way to catch all this lightning in a bottle in a way and show it to the nation so that we can ask questions about it and make sense of it. I think the challenge that we are trying to engage with on 1A in civil discourse is in having conversations about things that matter without forcing people to just calm down before they do it. I mean, from 1773, dissent is kind of built into our system. You know, civil unrest is not a bug of American democracy. It's a feature. It's good that we're able to dissent because we threw off an empire for whom dissent meant death. So for us, the challenge we've had is not in telling people, well, once you calm down, we can talk to you. Because... Americans who are part of these movements are upset for legitimate reasons, for reasonable reasons. The trick that we have, and this is what I hope we get a chance to discuss on this panel and hopefully one-on-one later, is how we can make space for dialogue about these big issues that doesn't tame them in a way that denatures them, that doesn't tell the people on the front lines of these movements you're too loud to be credible, you're too upset 
to be intelligible, but rather we can meet people where they are and tell the real story of their movements, give them a chance to, to speak that anger, to voice that emotion, and then once they've had a chance to kind of get that out, then find a way to talk about facts, figures, policy, arguments, so that we respect the fact that dissent is a feature of American democracy, but at a certain time and in a certain place, someone needs to be able to say, okay, if you're ready to have this conversation, we're here to listen. Pastor Bernard, you know, it it is really by design that we asked you to sit on the panel with two people from the media. We thought your perspective would bring... um, bring another insight as we're talking at the core of it about humanity. What are your thoughts? Wow, you know, it's amazing. First of all, thank you for the invitation and uh, the opportunity to be here, to be present with you. I celebrated 40 years of ministry last year. We've had four decades, my wife and I, to look at change take place in America, New York, where we are. And when I think about movements, I think about that one word, change. It's the only constant in life. It's the essence of maturation, which is true for an individual, a community, an organization, even a nation. If change doesn't take place from the top voluntarily, it will take place from the bottom by either revolution or some form of protest. And I'm for protests, and revolutions can be peaceful, revolutions can be violent, as long as they are informed and implemented with integrity. And I think that's where we've moved away. As a pastor, I am now expected every Sunday to opine on social issues, movements that are taking place within our society because people want to know if and how they should respond to these things as persons of faith. So I'm called upon now even more so to engage my prophetic imagination and engage in a prophetic analysis of what's happening. And it's interesting because the dynamic in our congregation is as a Republican with an 85% Democratic congregation, but all shared conservative social values, and where we've seen politics hijack a conversation that was not political, but should have been within the context of who we are as human beings, the life and dignity of the human person, I, need, I think we need to take it back from politics. Our president, K. Coles James, has been walking around with a quote over the past two weeks from James Baldwin. We can disagree and still love each other unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression. Mrs. James, I want to pull you into this conversation. <laughs> I want to pull you into this conversation. You know, we've, we, we've talked kind of from more of an infrastructural standpoint, but now I just want to start to dig a little deeper in. And just, I would like you to share, like, your first response 
of this quote. I'm going to read it again so everyone can hear it from James Baldwin. We can disagree and still love each other unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression. Thanks, Angela. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I thought that was an interesting quote for us here at the Heritage Foundation to wrap our minds around because I thought it was important for us to understand why the, the, the emotion that you described is so visceral because so many people believe that the policies that we represent here and, and the values that we represent are rooted in and they have they are convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are rooted in our desire to um, to discount their personhood, to discount uh, their civil rights, to discount um, uh, in some cases their very personhood, uh, who they are. And I don't think that's an accident. I think it's a tool sometimes that's used politically to get people to be engaged and to be upset. And so very often they can't hear the reason, the rationale, the logic, the research, the data, because they are so convinced that if it says Heritage Foundation, that what that means by definition is uh, racist, Uh, hateful, um, um, and a whole list of other things that need not be repeated. Um, And we needed to understand that that's what we're up against. And we need to understand that as we engage in civil discourse, that there are individuals who cannot have civil discourse because in their heart of hearts, they genuinely believe that we are attacking their personhood, their very nature, and who they are. And we, we need to understand that and not tell them to calm down, but understand that that's what it's rooted in, and we've got to get beyond that before we can have a conversation. So, gentlemen, in terms of the media and the role of the media with this balance, um, you know, how, how do we talk side by side about the pro-life movement and the civil rights movement and Black Lives Matter and um, the Tea Party, um, where you've got people who are living in their circle of friends or the people who they associate with day in and day out. So there is a level of comfort. There is a level of trust. And then when they go outside of that, and I mean that on for liberals, for conservatives, for blacks, for whites, for adults, for children. When we go outside of our day-to-day circle of interaction, our level of trust isn't the same. And so then we turn the television on, or then we look at the radio or a podcast, and we just we hear talking points and people going at it, and then it kind of gets lost. So in your role in the media, what kinds of things can happen to be able to break through some of this in a very short period of time, you know, a three-minute segment? Uh, you know, <clears throat> I'm a broadcast on it. Uh, I don't know a lot of 
network stations across the country? And it's a fascinating question. You know, I think the Jesse Smollett case is indicative of that question. And you may ask yourself, why? Why would so many people want to believe what he said in the media and across the board? Because when people saw his situation, they felt they saw themselves. Blacks felt they saw oppression. Gays felt they saw homophobic slurs. Um, Certain communities felt that even in the dead of winter, they could be targeted. And also, they saw this. No matter how high a black man may rise, he's still reminded that he's still a black man. So all those things came to bear. And so they wanted it to happen. But what they don't understand, the only thing that we know about Smollett Smollett, is from empire, is from the media, is from hearsay. You really have no idea who he is. You've allowed the media to dictate to you who he is, what he believes, and what he's about. It was unimaginable that he could lie. But men lie. They lie throughout, throughout time. So what we do... In our broadcast world, for me, when we see a story, I don't bring race. I don't bring the fact that I'm a man. I only want to know the facts. We don't really believe that a person is innocent until proven guilty. We prove them guilty before they are proven innocent because of what we bring. And until we stop allowing the media and our own circle of influence to reinforce that you're black first, you're a woman first, your man first, and become humanity, it will never change. We all have our baggage. Even in the conservative, there's really no, not much difference between the left and the right. Because you look at a person, and you talk about abortion, you talk about other issues, and you believe that's all there is to know about that person. You go out and buy somebody's book, a best-selling book, and you read about that author, and you actually believe through the pages, even if it's Abraham Lincoln, you know everything about Abraham Lincoln. You don't know 90% about who Abraham Lincoln was. He lived 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. There's only so much of his life living that long you can capture in a book. So what am I saying? you got to get to know people. Race, gender, preference don't help you to get to know people. We're too afraid. you got to extend your hand and said, my name is Armstrong Williams. Let us get to know each other. I'll tell you this story. I don't tell this story often. It's an important story that helped me because it has to start in the household. We grew up on a farm in South Carolina and an affluent family. My story is not one rags the riches. That's another stereotype. Every black person who's successful did not come from poverty. That's another narrative we like to push. And so my father had these fine red horses, and it was during the 60s, and they burned down his born. And I'll never forget, in the wee hours of the morning, we saw these three old white men walking away with the farm pastor with gas canisters in their hands. And my brother said, there there's all these old white races. They will never allow blacks. Even when they do the right thing, they go to church. Um, they have the character. They have the work ethic. They still are going to discriminate against us. And my father, in the height of his anger and the height of his loss, stopped my brother and said, no, those are not three white men. Those were three individuals filled with hatred, bigotry, and animus. It has nothing to do with anybody else except their story and only their story. In that example, my father set an example to me that people are individuals. They can never be groups. We have far more in common than we're willing to admit or recognize. 
Joshua? Well, in terms of what, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm so choked up to be here. <clears throat> in terms of what the media can do to help with these dialogues, I think it's going to vary by what kind of medium that we're talking about. You know, there's media and there's media and there's media. And I work in a medium, but there's we're one piece of it. And I think that there is a use for all kinds of different media. I know there are some people who think that certain channels or certain outlets are just, oh, they're everything that's wrong. I think it's great that there's so much diversity and that we're so much more aware. Because if you look back at the history of journalism in this country, there were newspapers for every political persuasion. And the audience has never overlapped, right? Now, at least Americans are aware of these various different news outlets, media outlets with different perspectives and or slants. And the way we criticize and consume news and information is much more shrewd now than it has ever been. It comes with a lot of additional problems, misinformation, disinformation, bad information online, people just sharing flat-out lies and they go viral. That is also an issue. But generally, I think the media landscape offers a lot of promise because there's so much more cross-pollination. It's so much easier. Like, I, I don't have to get you to, to know what station your NPR station is and then go up, 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 up until you find me. You can find me on your station. You can find me on an app on your phone. You can find me through a link that somebody shared on Facebook or Twitter or that somebody texted you. There's so many more ways for us to encounter one another. So our responsibility is to find ways of telling these stories that will hook you. I am a firm believer that we have to be better storytellers as journalists if we want to have these kinds of conversations, like a three-minute segment <laughs> I don't think we know how to do a three-minute segment on 1A. Like, our shortest segment is 12, and we like working with an hour. So, But even in that 12 minutes, like, the first 12 seconds got to hook you, you know, before you let us in for the next minute and then the next minute and the next minute. I'm a firm believer that it it is not your job to be interested. It is our job to be interesting. John Dewey once said the media's job is to interest the public in the public interest. It's our job. So if we see, back to the point about civil movements, if we see this conversation going on in the public, we can do what a lot of media outlets do. And you're very astute to say that some of them are just in it to keep you watching, that we find the hottest part of it and the most sensational part of it, and we clip that out for three minutes, and then we find something else to clip out for three minutes and find something else to clip out for three minutes. Or you take another tack. And I'm not saying that what 1A does is perfect, best, or infallible, but our strategy is we try to tell stories through the lives of the people who are directly affected. So if it's a story about, you know, tax policy, that's the kind of thing that makes a lot of people's eyes eyelids get heavy, unless we tell it through the eyes of, say, a mother with three children living in an impoverished area who is trying to rethink what she's going to do with her dollars because of changes in the tax code. Or if we're talking about, you know, the war in Afghanistan, we talk to a family, a military family that's affected by it and is wondering what's going to happen to their loved one on their fourth deployment. So that in the conversation about policy, which we will get to, we begin by rooting it in the lives of real people. So we never forget that it's not theoretical. You know, the issues that make people upset are not just 
pie in the sky. This is not so that you can kind of get another win on your record and make it closer to the playoffs because you're the smartest one on the debate team. This is a real democracy. Like, democracy is a contact sport, and everyone gets bruises, even the winners. So we want to make sure that people are always aware that there are real lives in the middle of these issues, that policy and politics is not just about who wins and loses inside the beltway. It's about a nation of 300 million Americans who are saying, help, and we're trying to figure out what to do. That's what's worked for us. And the challenge we have is figuring out just how to tell that story, finding the best person who can articulate that, finding guests who can speak to various sides of an issue. And again, not necessarily who can speak to an issue in a polite way. Sometimes the impoliteness and the difficulty and the dissent is critical to the discussion. Because we don't want to give you the impression that, oh, well, both sides are working their way toward the center and they're just, you know, they're on the edge of finding a solution if they're on opposite ends. Sometimes you got to hear that. And sometimes just hearing the anger and the vitriol makes a, makes a big difference. We booked one guy on the show months ago uh, who we were talking about, uh, we were doing a show about um, corruption in the Baltimore Police Department. And we booked a former Baltimore PD officer. And I asked him, you know, give us an, he was a remote guest, so I couldn't see him. Give us an example of something you encountered in Baltimore PD that, that is emblematic of the kind of corruption you noticed. Black dude. And he said, well, first of all, Joshua, I just want to let you know that the criminal justice system is inherently corrupt and designed to leave black men imprisoned in a prison industrial complex and the legacy of slavery in this country. And I'm like, hey, 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 it's just round one. Just tell me the story. I'll answer with the story. And no matter what I asked him, I could not get him off this talking point. So we go to break and I'm like, God, what am I going to do with this guy? We come back from break. I ask him another question. And as he's, as he's giving the answer to the question, I almost missed it. His voice wavered just a little. I was like, oh. 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 Okay. And when he calmed down, I said, sir, I hope I'm not reading you wrong, but from the way you've described your experience as a Baltimore police officer, you sound like it left you traumatized. Do you carry trauma from your work as a police officer? And he said, I put people behind bars who are better people than I am. And then it made sense. And that's the kind of alchemy, right? That's the key is to find that space where you can let people be who they are and not break them down and say, oh, you got to calm down before we can talk, where you can let that real emotion live in a way that's still illuminating. And a lot of journalists, are they're just not skilled in doing that. They don't have the space. They don't have the time. They have economic imperatives that say, no, 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 faster, louder, you know, hotter, more sensational. We got to keep the profits rising. But for those spaces where we can do that, we try very, very hard to make sure people can just be who they are, say what they feel, and say it next to folks who can talk policy, who can talk solutions, without forcing either group of people to be something other than who they really are. Thank you. Pastor Bernard, you know, there's also, as, as Joshua just stated, there's a healing that has to happen within all of us. And um, the first time I heard you speak was at the Museum of the Bible. And you have an awesome gift 
of talking about hardcore values inside of what would also be considered kind of political dynamic issues. So as we're engaging in this dialogue, what's your advice to all the leaders in the audience in terms of how to temper and steady their ship as they bring their message in a way that it has passion, but it's controlled and it can be effective? Exactly what you said I would tell them. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's interesting. You talk about letting people be who they are. Unfortunately, a significant portion of our nation is in an identity crisis. People don't really know who they are. And we live in a world, 24-hour news cycle, social media, Hollywood, that allows you to make that decision several times in a day. So you can start out in the morning as one person. By the end of the day, you've gone through eight different identities and never discovering who you really are. And that's part of Jesse Smollett's problem in losing his identity because it became caught up in celebrity obsession. Um, you know, it's tough when we live in a world where I, I grew up as a kid remembering the Huntley Brinkley Report. I don't know if you even know what that is. I do, actually, yes. Good. <laughs> where news was reporting, now it's news as entertainment. And when we move to taking news as entertainment, then we're forced to do things with the information to evoke a certain emotion, response, uh, a way of thinking from our audience. And I, I thought I'd be allowed to address the media just a little bit because the power to define is the power to control perception. Media, by defining people, incidents, policies, situations actually have the power to control the perceptions that are being experienced by those who view it. And you know the old story that perception goes halfway around the world before reality gets out of bed. So people are caught by these perceptions and they become their reality and they begin to live it out and become advocates of it because of what they saw from media. I think we need to be more responsible with the perceptions that we know we are trying to create just to get the story out there. When you talk about not just putting policy but building it around a young woman and, and her children, what you're doing is creating a perception. And how close is that perception to the truth? How close is it to reality? Because we're taking a lot of latitude and we're moving farther and farther away from reporting truth. And the truth gets lost. So I think we need to be more responsible with how we control the feelings and emotions of people. I have media people, anchors, who go to my church. and They're on, you know, uh, major networks. And, you know, uh, they tell me. They're told before they go out. You better report the news, but you better make it entertaining. And the millennials in my congregation, they're not getting news from CNN, Fox, NBC, CBS. They're going to Comedy Central to hear comedians give them the news. 
And that's where they're getting it from. So we, we've got some problems in how we're communicating. And we're not really thinking about the fruit of it, what we're producing on the other side. And that is the people, and what they walk away with when they watch our broadcasts or listen to our radio programs. I want to get the audience involved. Um, we have Ed Gillespie with us, who is former RNC chairman and an advisor to a former advisor to uh, President George W. Bush. <coughs> Uh, there's a lot going on in Virginia right now. <laughs> so we'd like to get you in the conversation uh, in terms of, I mean, we're, we're like in real time. I mean, the, it's like the ground is shaking. And would just love to hear your thoughts about, you know, the state of Virginia and, you know, how, how do we respond as responsible citizens? I appreciate that. And let me just say for Virginians, this is a very painful time. And to see these images splashed up on television screens and websites and newspapers, and it doesn't reflect the Virginia that I know and and my fellow Virginians. And so uh, I would say, you know, Virginia has a long history when it comes to race, obviously. And it is a history. Virginia and Virginians from our very founding as a country have been at the forefront of American history. That doesn't mean we've always been on the right side of American history. In fact, we've been on the wrong side many times. But when it comes to, I was looking at the, the visuals of the civil rights movement, we have, you know, we were the home of massive resistance, but we were also the origin, I would point out, of Brownview Board of Education in Farmville, in Farmville High School and Moton High School. Uh, more students who are uh, plaintiffs in Brown v. Board were Virginians and from any other state. And I think it was smart, obviously, to have a state, uh, you know, Kansas, to, to be there for the, for the reasons that were chosen by the chief at the time. Uh, but if you haven't been to the Moton Museum in Farmville, I would encourage everyone to go. And when Barbara Johns led that walkout, you feel like you're there, uh, there. Kapahosik is the cradle of Virginia civil rights and really of American civil rights. And the Gloucester Institute does a fantastic job that beautiful piece of property where Dr. King stayed before the March on Washington. Proud of that history uh, in Virginia. We're very proud that uh, this year we'll celebrate the inauguration, the 30th anniversary of the inauguration of the first elected black governor in the history of the United States of America. And so I would just remind folks while, you know, we're seeing some imagery right now that does not reflect well on some of the leadership in Virginia, uh, we have much to be proud of. We have a long way to go. And uh, I would also just share, I think, I, I think it's very important for us to, one of the things uh, that we're seeing in American society right now is there's a sorting that's going on. And, and it's not just in the media, certain people watching MSNBC and certain people watching Fox. We're living with people with whom we agree and not around people with whom we disagree. There's a, there is a real sorting going on, and that's a problem. And I think that one of the things when I ran for office that was exciting for me was to be able to go places that I otherwise would not go and to meet people I otherwise would not meet. And that was enlightening to me and to try to look at things through other people's eyes. And, and I guess one anecdote I'd like to share because we, we saw the Black Lives Matter uh, reference in the, in the video as well. And I remember the first time I saw that and, and my initial immediate reaction was similar, I suspect, to a lot of people, which is, well, of course, Black Lives Matter. All lives matter. 
But I, then I stopped and thought, yet I have never once in my life felt the need to stand up and shout, white lives matter. And when you hear a significant portion of your fellow Americans feeling compelled to, to call this to your attention, you need to stop and listen. And it affected my thinking in terms of criminal justice reform and a number of other things. And so I guess what I would say to you is, you know, this is a rough time in Virginia. It is not reflective of the values and, and, and the people of Virginia. And we've had tough times before and we've gotten through it and I'm confident we will get through it again now. Rob Bluey, could you share with us um, an experience you had in New York where you were bold enough to venture outside of your comfort zone into a new neighborhood and have a brand new discussion? Well, yes, speaking uh, directly to Black Lives Matter, uh, I was actually listening to a podcast uh, from Arthur Brooks, the president of American Enterprise Institute, where he talked uh, to a gentleman by the name of Hawk Newsom, who leads uh, Black Lives Matter of Greater New York. And I was fascinated by the conversation that Arthur had with him, and similar to the conversation we're having today. So I said to Mrs. James, I'm going up to the South Bronx tomorrow, and I'm going to meet with uh, Hawk Newsom. And uh, we uh, had a fascinating conversation, Angela. I mean, I'll tell you, we probably had very little in common, but uh, from the moment we sat down to start talking, it was clear that there was a lot of common ground between the things that he believed in as a devout Christian and a father and somebody who really cared about his community. Same things, same values that I have. So uh, it was a, a tremendous experience for me to learn from him. And I would just encourage others to seek out, just as Ed Gillespie was talking about, those opportunities where you might be uncomfortable at first, but I think it can be really rewarding. I'm sorry, I, if I may respond. That is so important, what you're saying. I have leaders within the Black Lives Matter who are part of my congregation. I, the nation's become so divided, and we've become so blinded by all the noise that we fail to realize that we have so much in common. There are blacks who can't see white poverty because of white privilege. There are whites who can't see white privilege because of their own poverty. We have impasses like that that blind us to the reality that we're both in the same boat. And if we could start having conversations and get beyond the noise, we could really start moving in a positive direction. So thank you for venturing into our community. <laughs> uh, Angela, you know, I want to challenge um, Mr. Gillespie here a minute. Um, someone I've known actually for a long time, we used to hang out at the Ravens football game, so I know his character. Uh, but I, I want to challenge you. You know, the current governor of Virginia, to me, his biggest crime was he was a hypocrite. He painted you to be a racist and a bigot. <laughs> and in essence, he was talking about himself. However, if we talk about movements and change, um, there are many people you can find in the Congress and in Virginia 
who can relate to his black face and what other faces. But if the movement has moved beyond that and the person has shown himself that he no longer embraces those stereotypes and that he's not that same person, isn't it equally important, no matter whether he's a hypocrite or not, because, you know, that's why he's brought to open shame. You know, karma can be a vicious cycle for people. But still, I didn't care whether he was a Democrat or not. I would not judge him by what he did in his 20s. Because if the shoe were on another foot, if it were a conservative in the same position, conservatives would say the same thing. We should not judge them by what happened 30 years ago. No different than Kavanaugh. So when do we get to the point, and tell me if I'm wrong, where principle and progress is far more in principle than political expediency. So I'm really asking you is what should be the verdict of this governor? Mine is he should be forgiven, and it should not be anything that says he cannot do his job because we've moved beyond that, and we've made progress. Need the mic. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I just. Yeah. My microphone in my house. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Speak on it. You know, um, this gentleman right here has been a friend for a long time, and this isn't a political thing for me. Um, but one of the things that has been distressful for me in Virginia for many years is how race has been used in politics. And more, and typically more, um, always, always, um, from, uh, from Democrats. Um, and I think one of the things that was so hurtful for those of us who loved Ed Gillespie, who knew him as a person, um, was to see how he was characterized during that whole process. That was painful, painful. Here's what I told my children when they were growing up. Pastor, I told them sin has consequences. Hmm. And some, all sins may be equal, but some have more historical consequences than others. And I have long since forgiven our current governor. I really have, truly have. And, um, but I think that uh, the consequences of those actions have bearings going forward for his leadership in the Commonwealth of Virginia right now. And I think that the sin was not 30 years ago, but what happened in that last campaign if you, and, and what he did here. And for me, that was just one small part of it because the whole thing on infanticide was right up there and looms big, big. So I would have said to a conservative as well, um, that if you did something, there are consequences that, that really attack your ability for moral leadership. And maybe you should just go sit down for a minute and let things heal. So I, yeah, I love you, brother, but I had to disagree. But, but you use the word sin, so now you're in my territory. <laughs> We have a question from Dina Bass. Oh, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. 
<laughs> I, I was going to say, Adam and Eve were forgiven, but they were put out of the garden. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> forgiveness, forgiveness does not take away the consequences of your actions, especially if those consequences make it difficult for you to function effectively and efficiently in the position that you once held. So for the sake of progress, you should make a decision to remove yourself and not allow the community to go down with you because you want to hold on to power. I won't derail the conversation long. I know you want to go to another question, but I think in the context of how do we have better conversations around difficult issues, what just happened to me is kind of the sweet spot. Like that's the alchemy we try to get to on 1A when the audience engages itself. And when people start to comment and then someone else comments on a question and then someone else chimes in, like the conversation takes over by itself. So you asked a question and you made a point and you fired back and then you had something to, and like you could kind of lean back because and all you have to do is just kind of all you have to do is referee, right? To make some make sure nobody like throws a punch or anything like that. That to me is is the challenge whether it's an organization like Heritage or a network like NPR or a local station or a network or anybody, if we're focused on that kind of civil dialogue about social movements. I'd be lying if I said I knew what the, what the answer was. I know what works for us on 1A. I know what works for NPR stations across the country. But I think from our work, and I've seen it work every single time, it's amazing how well it works when it works. The key is figuring out how... And from my perspective, the key is figuring out how in your community, whether that's a city or a country or an organization or whatever, for your conflict of the day, you can create a framework where the conversation can run itself, where you provide just enough refereeing and just enough ground rules and just enough questions to spark the conversation, and then the alchemy takes over. And then people are able to know, okay, this is a civil space for dialogue. This is a safe space for me to challenge what you said. This is a safe space for me to chime in. This is a safe space for me to disagree. Like that's the, that's the trick. It's a really light touch. I consider any show that I do where I talk more than I listen a failure. And I like to talk, so that's hard for me. But when – if we do anything right on the show, it's when we build it in a way that the touch is light enough that the audience will take over and people can disagree. And they'll keep talking days later on Facebook. Like sometimes we'll come back and we're like, These, they still, this show was for that, it's over. But for them, it's not. It's that. And I think the organizations that are able to do that in ways where the, the boundaries are clear and the framework is simple and the touch is very light and they they give the audience permission to rise to a higher level they set a bar and they allow the audience to go no it should be here that's when it works it's yeah. different for every organization but for me that's that's the sweet spot but does it begin when you Make sure that you don't invalidate someone's opinions or feelings just because you disagree with them. Because if that's where you start, mm -hmm. then the hostility will continue. 
and it'll just escalate. And too often we do that. Just because I disagree with you and what you have to say doesn't mean that you're invalid or what your opinion is is illegitimate. And too often, that's where we start. No, you're wrong. We invalidate. So the person gets angry, hurt, and they're going to feel the only way to get their point across is to increase the hostility. And And I must admit, for me in life, you've got to always search and our search should be for a higher truth. And in this brief exchange, I've thought about something I never thought about before. I've never considered in the equation. And I'm sure that may have happened to someone in the audience. And something is growing inside me, which I must consider now. I have not considered before. And you can only have that in what you both said. And silence and quietness. When we can listen and be civil and allow everyone to be themselves not feeling they're going to be maligned or insulted so they can speak, because that's how change comes about. And that's why some people who once say they were pro-choice, something just happens in a moment in a dialogue, and all of a sudden they change courses forever. And that's what we have to do. We have to infect people with just the truth. Now, I love what you said, that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. That's significant to me. Yes. And I'll remember that. so we've got about five minutes left and I want to make sure we get a a few more people into this conversation and that we're able to wrap up and um, convince you to come back again next year Uh, Dina Bass Uh, Virginia, but who can say it better than Kekos James? So, uh, <laughs> but I do have a question uh, for uh, Joshua Johnson, and I will say that when you took the spot for Diane Reams, I gave my radio a side eye, but uh, I was very excited, and I've been listening and excited that you're there. You. Uh, and one of the reasons that I'm excited that you're there is because you do offer balance, and you do have both sides of of, of issues, and that is what I've. What I, I'd like to ask about in terms of the, the statement that you made earlier about the segments of television, you know, we know what Fox represents, we know what MSNBC, we know what CNN, and and we go to those areas to kind of validate those stations to validate what we what, what our views are. And I think that's actually dangerous um, in order for, and I, you know, I'm flipping channels to get, to get to one truth, to get to the truth. And I don't believe in my truth. I don't believe in your truth. I believe that there is a truth, like I believe in the truth. And we can't get that because we have to literally listen to 10 stations, four podcasts and read, you know, three blogs to get any kernel of the truth. So and and I also see see a degree of selective outrage in in MSNBC and in Fox and what will what Fox will um uh condemn in MSNBC when it's in their camp they won't so I feel like there's to me that is very dangerous this idea of having um segmented news uh in that way so can you comment on that Sure. And I, I, I should say, in the interest of full disclosure, I am an NBC News contributor. So I do appear at times on Meet the Press or on MSNBC. I do appear on these networks at times. And so I speak as someone who is not an unbiased observer about NBC News, just by way of context. Personally, I think if you look a little bit further back in history, as I said, you know, news has always been segmented and slanted. It's kind of the beginning of the penny press in this country. The idea that news should be right down the middle 
in the history of American journalism is a little newer. And what you articulated, uh, Pastor, is, is the contemporary standard. And I think it's the right one, that we should have news outlets that just tell you what's going on. I think that's, I think that's necessary. I personally have found spaces on Meet the Press, on some programs on MSNBC, where I can remain in my lane as an analyst. It's part of my contract with NBC News that I am not to become a commentator. I could lose my, I could be fired from my hosting position if I slip into commentary away from analysis as closely as I can hew to just being an analyst. So for me, you know, there are white hot firewalls around what I'm allowed to say. We also know that the way people watch cable news specifically is complex. I think it was the Center for Excellence in Journalism that found that the people who watch Fox and who watch MSNBC, some of them watch it because they love it, and quite a lot of people are hate-watching. Remember, the WWE has heroes and heels. They're both part of the same league, and there's a reason for that. They know some people are going to watch Fox just because they want to hear what that idiot Tucker Carlson is saying tonight. And some people are going to watch MSNBC because, oh, Rachel Maddow makes me so sick. What 23-minute what Rhodes Scholar essay are you going to do tonight, Rach? We know people do that. And so for us, it becomes a source of catharsis, right? It gives us an opportunity to say, I'm keeping an eye on those people I don't like. It's also frustrating because there's nothing you can do about it, Right? You call, you know, 212-664, whatever the number is, to get NBC News. Nobody's going to – they ain't going to take your call. They're going to give your number to the FBI. They don't care who you are. You call – and that's one of the things that that NPR member stations try to be very responsive to. I loved it when people would call me back when I was at KQED with some complaint about what I said. KQED News, good morning. Yeah, I got a bone to pick with you. I heard your program this morning. I don't know. I don't know. That guy, that Joshua Johnson, I just don't know which way his head is screwed on because he said something. I don't know. Can I talk to somebody about Joshua Johnson because your program, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, Joshua, we're going to toss it to oh, no, the... <laughs> I, 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 I mean, the reason I bring that up is because when they would call, I would say, oh, this is Joshua. Can I help you? You're Joshua Johnson? Yes. What can I do for you? Oh. Uh, well, I love your program, first of all. That's a... <laughs> the point that I'm trying to make briefly is that you have to be careful what media you invest in. You know, garbage in, garbage out. If you don't like what you see on cable news, why are you watching? If you don't like what you read from certain newspapers, shouldn't you cancel your subscription? If you do like what you get from certain news outlets, Shouldn't you tell them, write them, find out who the editor is, and let them know what it is that you like? I try very hard not to police other news organizations. My responsibility is what goes out on 1A and what we can do to support NPR member stations and what I can do in my capacity as an NBC News contributor. That's what I can do. If they're not meeting your needs, dump them. And the ones who do meet your needs, the ones who do support civic dialogue, compliment them and do your best to let them know I am walking away from you. And here's why. Or I'm doubling down on you. I'm betting on you. I'm counting on you. And here's why. And as a growing audience like you, we just started a new program on WABC called The Rev and the Rabbi. It's myself and uh, Rabbi Joseph Potastic, who is the uh, head of the New York Board of Rabbis. And 
we take on the issues, but in a balanced way and have a civil conversation. And sometimes we disagree. When we took on the governor and, you know, our New York state governor and this, this whole abortion law, you know, I discovered something in the conversation. And in the Jewish tradition, they believe that when a life is in a womb, it's a potential life. And it's not fully a life until it is born. My response to him was, well, we believe a life is a life. It, it, you know, it's, it's, it's drawing nutrients from the mother. It's, it's, it's moving. It's a life. And we were able to have that conversation. We had more people call in and say thank you for disagreeing in an intelligent way and in a civil way. And we need to get back to civility mm -hmm. because it's, which is the reason why we have this, because it's costing money. Mm -hmm. The incivility has gotten into corporate America, and it's costing the bottom line. So we're going we're gonna to go to um, the lady here. We're going to grab a comment from the former lieutenant um, governor of Maryland, Michael Steele, and then we're going to let the panel give a one-sentence wrap-up, and Mrs. James will come to the podium. Hi, I'll try to make it as fast as I can. My name's Carolina Morris. I live in New York City. I got here by flight. I'm retired American Airlines. I listen to the Rev. Thank you. <laughs> Everyone should hear. It's fantastic. Just to quickly tell you, I worked in the Trump campaign. I volunteered in the Trump Tower for about three months. I went every day. I live on the Upper West Side in New York, which is very democratic, very liberal. And I was so proud to work in the Trump Organization that I tell people about it. Now, I travel as a retiree all over the United States. Every day I'm in a taxi or an Uber or I'm in Curb in New York. And I have a lot of drivers from Pakistan, from India, from all over. And I get in the cab and I say, do you mind if we could put on AM? They're all listening to 1010 or sports or nothing. Put on AM 970 in New York, 770, 710. Those are excellent stations. And I said, just listen. And a lot of these drivers, this is how you spread the word about what's right. They turn to me as I'm getting out, especially today at LaGuardia. Thank you. You let me listen to something that was so meaningful. And I engage everybody that I meet in conversation about our president, what our values are, and I do listen. It's very important. I'm so often in situations where, you know, people are arguing or yelling, but you do have to step back and listen and then just say, you know, you might be right about that. You know, nobody's perfect. Our president is not perfect, but he is on the right track, and he's really importantly trying to help this country. So it is important to stop and listen to everybody and start a conversation. It's great, but listen to what they say. Maybe agree with some of their disagreements. It's okay to do that. We're all out there, and I'm a mother of a U.S. Navy my son, David Morris in San Diego, going into the Navy changed his life. And let me tell you what's going to be the solution. If we can get faith in every one of us, that is what we need, and that is what would change the world. That's all. Thank you. Thank you. Michael Steele, you're going to bring us home. <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. Well, first off, I, I want to thank um, Heritage and my friend Kay Cole for uh, bringing us all together in, in this sort of gathering moment. And uh, this, this panel uh, is a reflection of 
the kind of conversation we should be having every single day in this country um, that recognizes uh, not just the limitations, those white, bright, hot spots and walls that we need to um, be mindful of, but also um, the value of the one thing that we stopped doing in this country some time ago, and that is listening. This era that we're in, in my estimation, uh, and I've engaged in it uh, as a political analyst at MSNBC, as a former chairman of our national party, um, as a lieutenant governor uh, in a state like Maryland, um, leadership, and this is how I kind of bring it all down. I learned a lot from this brother sitting next to me at Gillespie. We've been in the trenches a long time. Uh, We've gotten into... uh, a couple of scrapes along the way where we had each other's backs. We're kind of standing back to back, sort of punching our way out of a room. Um, And um, the one thing that matters most of all that I think is the capstone of this conversation is leadership. I learned a long time that leadership, there are two qualities to leadership that is profoundly important in order for anything in this room that was discussed to occur. The first thing, a leader has to be prepared to lead, to take on the tough decisions, to make the hard choices, to engage people who don't want to be engaged, and to find a way to move people to a ground. It may be a common ground. It may actually be a ground on the left side. It may be ground on the right side because in that moment, that's the right ground to be on. And so the leader takes you there. And he says to conservatives, yeah, I understand how you feel about tax cuts and so forth. But right now, we need to stand a little bit more on this ground over here because. And he says to our liberal friends, yeah, I understand where you are on the matter of choice. But we need to understand at this moment, we need to move a little bit more on this ground because of the value of the conversation around life. That's what a leader does. But the second and probably the most important thing that leader has to be able to do is listen. Always prepared to lead, but never afraid to follow. And it is in the following that he or she listens. Our leaders have stopped listening. They just want to lead. Because that's where the power center is. That's where the opportunity is. That's where the mojo is. That's where the money is. The listening is the hardest part of the task. And... Joshua, you started the conversation, and I wrote it down because I thought it was very important. You said, um, you talk about those folks that um, once you calm down, we can discuss. The problem with that attitude, and when you hear someone say that literally or through their body language, what they are saying to you in that moment is, I'm not listening to you. You know, when you come to me with an excited utterance about something that's passionate and important to you, and I say, well, you just need to calm down. They're not listening to you. And right, quite honestly, they don't give a damn about what you're about to say next. They want to move through that moment. So the leadership that's required right now is when they let you vent. They let you come at. I mean, Ed and I had some real tough heart-to-heart conversation after his experience. And what Ed needed from me in that moment was not to say, Ed, you need to calm down. (laughs) But he needed me to shut up and listen was something my mother taught me when I was a young boy. So I think if we all practice a little bit of shutting up and listening, 
the leadership will emerge from within us to then take the next step to lead the country, our community, uh, where we need to be next. Thank you. Thank you. So again, to our panel, we, we appreciate your words of wisdom, your participation. To the audience, we appreciate your engagement and would like to just allow you to have a closing statement out before we bring Mrs. James up um, to focus our attention on Jay Parker, um, the man who we are here today remembering and honoring, uh, a man who really spoke about the content of someone's character versus the color of their skin. Pastor Bernard. Threw me off. I was waiting for the <laughs> I What I want to say is, is quite short. The prophet Jeremiah said that you cannot, and it was at a time that the nation of Israel was in an uproar, and they were failing in leadership, and because they weren't listening. So the prophet said simply, you cannot heal a wound by saying it's not there. We've done that long enough. But when we agree that there is a problem, the only way that we begin to solve it is when we sit down and begin to have a civil conversation, validating each other as human beings with an opinion, even if I disagree with you. Communication, the art of communication is not in your ability to speak. It's in your ability to listen. Thanks for letting me listen to y'all. This is, this is great. I would encourage you to please engage with us. We're online at the1a.org. There are many ways to get in touch with us. We welcome your ideas for conversations we should be having. We would be wildly presumptuous if we thought we knew what we should be talking about on our show. We don't. We can't know unless we co-author it. So please be in touch with us, whatever it is you think we should discuss. One last thing I would share, and this pegs to part of what Michael Steele said, is that I've had to learn as a host, and this did not come naturally, but I've had to learn as a host not to judge people who aren't ready to have a civil conversation because mm. some people are just in too much pain. They're wrapped up in too much anger. They have too much vengefulness. They feel too much shame to take down the 20-ton shield and let you see the broken pieces of their heart. So one thing I've had to learn how to do, and I would just leave you with this, is for those people you encounter who are not ready to have a civil conversation, you ain't got to let them hurt you or insult you or beat you down, but I have found it's better for my heart to just say, all right, today ain't today. When you're ready, I'm going to be right here. Whenever you're ready to talk, we can talk. I think that civil dialogue can't exist without a judgment-free space, and that includes not judging people who aren't ready for the space. You know, the best and most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or heard. It must be always felt and displayed through the human heart. Thank you. Yes, can we bring a mic down? Or not. <laughs> yeah. I think all the mics are gone, so I will just do it. You want mine? You can have mine. If you no, want. no, I don't think I'll need it. First of all, I want to thank each and every one of you for being here. We would like to see your face also. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, okay. There we go. 
Yeah, you know, um, it's an important conversation to have, and this is just the opening conversation. And uh, when I thought about the people who could engage in this, it was very thoughtful. All three of you are here for very specific reasons, um, and you did not disappoint, so thank you. Um, I want to let the audience know that we are honored today by the presence of Mrs. Parker. So, Dee, would you just stand up and wave and let folks know you're here? When I first came to Washington some probably 30 years ago, someone said to me, uh, there are two people that you need to meet, Jay Parker and Bill Keyes. Yeah, and uh, they, 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 they were kind enough to take me under their wings at that time, and that's when I first met Jay Parker. And I just asked Bill if he would share for a few minutes about Jay Parker and what he meant to him and indeed to all of us. There are people I see in the room like Lee and others who Jay had a profound impact on all of us. But Bill, would you close it out for us and just talk about Thank you, Kay. Um, first of all, there is nobody who said Jay Parker and Bill Keys. <laughs> I mean, it's not, not even close to the same category. Not even close. But thank you for saying that anyway. <laughs> now, I, was, I wanted to look around really quickly. I don't think my wife is here yet. Um, yet. She, she's coming to, to meet with you, but she's not here. And I just want you to know, by the way, just in case this sounds like inside talk, Charles and Kay are our dearest friends in Washington. And she would have been so proud to hear you say, it is my mic in my house. <laughs> and you know that's true. All right? And so I'm saying that because it reminds me of something that Jay Parker always said. Sometimes you just wait them out. You know? And then your turn comes, and I am actually thankful to God Almighty that Kay James is the president of the Heritage Foundation. So um, we, we've been talking about civil discourse, and I'm sure that that's a reminder of something that Jay always said, which was, we can disagree without being disagreeable. He said it, if he said it once, he said it a hundred times, and he meant it, and it was something that for those of us who were, who were, who were blessed to be his protégés, it's something that I think infected all of us to be able to communicate more effectively with people than we, we ever would have been able to otherwise. Jay Parker. Jay, so you come to town and they say meet Jay Parker and some other guy. Well, when I came to town, the reality is I was up, Armstrong, you'll get a kick out of this. I'm up late one night listening to Jimbo Hannon, midnight on WW w whatever radio station that was. And there was this program on, and he had a, had a guest on. And I called the radio station the next day, asked how to reach that guest, got the guest, went and saw him to ask him about the topic he was talking about. And he said, you need to meet a guy named Jay Parker. That was 40 years ago. And Jay, um, I found Jay. I went to meet with him, and Jay immediately became my best friend. So Jay um, is a man who was my best friend, my mentor. He was like a brother and like a father to me. Now, how someone can fill all of those roles in your life uh, means that he has to be a really special person. 
Jay was that for me from the moment we met until the day that he died. And my life is just exponentially better because of having known him. Um, and that's all I'm going to say about that. But one thing I will say uh, in addition is um, thank you for having Dolores and Ashley Parker here with us. Um, like in your life, right, there's Charles and Kay. You know, there's not, not Kay and there's not Charles. For me, it's Charles and Kay. And I think for us, I mean, you think of Bill and Lola, right? And for you guys, it was Jay and Dolores, right? It was Jay and Dolores. It was always the two of you. And whatever sacrifices that Jay was going to make for tons and tons of people who called him a mentor or a friend, whatever sacrifices he made for us, you were, you were making that sacrifice as well. And so I just want to say this really fast, and then I'll sit down because it's not the Bill Key show. <laughs> but I just want to say to you, Dolores, thank you so much for all that you've done, you know, supporting Jay and in your own right being a great person, a great friend, a great mentor to many people, a great citizen of this country, someone who stood on moral principles the same way that your husband Jay did. Thank you so much. I thank Jay, but I thank you too, and Ashley, you as well. It was a family situation that you did for so many of us, and I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you. Thank So we are going to close out, and I want to draw your attention back to the screen one last time. Um, as we leave, we want you to join us in honoring patriots of the Trump administration. The Heritage Foundation salutes them for their devotion to the ideals that Jay Parker fought for, limited government, individual freedom, and a society that judges men and women on the basis of their merit, not the color of their skin. We thank these honorees for their dedication in building an America where freedom, opportunity, prosperity, and civil society flourish.
Again, thank you so much, and we hope you will enjoy and um, join us over in Shaw for a reception for some good food. Right. <laughs>